0: Every Woman is a feminist show that highlights the struggles, triumphs, and accomplishments of women and girls and the men who support them. Every Woman includes a rich intersection of female voices that represent a wide range of ethnicities, social and economic status, as well as political and spiritual beliefs, with the purpose to enact social, political, environmental, and economic change. The views and opinions expressed on Every Woman are those of the hosts and the guests and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, KKFI staff, board or management. Good afternoon, KKFI listeners and welcome to this week's edition of Every Woman. I am one of the hosts today, Rachel, and your faithful board operator. I am coming to you live from the world headquarters of KKFI here in Studio A in Midtown Kansas City. How are you doing today, Kansas City? Um, I also want to welcome to the show our lovely co-hosts and co-producers, Una and Fiona, who seem to be sharing a computer today. How are you? Good,
1: thank you. And we can find these cats lurking in the background, oh. watching us and judging us and finding us unworthy as always.
0: <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that like a cat's main purpose in life, is to sort of judge?
1: Yeah, but I think Chinese sometimes take it to 11.
0: (laughs) How did you guys survive the storms last night? Everything okay?
1: Okay, but there were some intermittent flickers of power uh, sorting out this morning and then coming back.
2: Well, as you know, I'm the designated driver a lot, well, pretty much every time at the clubs. And last night as I was driving folks home, I had to drive southwest, had a tree completely blocking it i had to drive around a lot of large pieces of tree in kansas city but once i got more towards prairie village overland park it was just down to small rims so i've seen on facebook a lot of our friends are still without power yeah.
1: And it's an awful hot and humid weekend to be without power.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we um, we lost power about 11 o'clock last night at my house, and my middle puppy, Tessa, I mean, she's eight years old, but she's still my puppy, uh, hates the thunder, and so she was trembling and panting oh. and running for a place, trying to find a place to hide, and then the power went out, and she ducked under my desk and was, like, laying on my feet, and then the power sort of came back on, but it was like a brown out, and then it was in and out and in and out so then it was like strobe lights everywhere I thought she was going to lose it and I, f- I also felt like I was in poltergeist all of a sudden I was like okay I don't need any of this so I went downstairs and oh, hit the breakers it, to shut everything off well
2: but I guess it, if it was like strobing she was either going to lose it or break out a couple of glow sticks <laughs> and start raising and it, exactly. it's
1: not funny but when you said my middle hub my
0: middle puppy. To yes, I'm a dog mom to three. But all is well this morning. It was a long night, however, because no electricity, so the house got really warm. But there you go. It did not prevent me, however, from coming into the studio today and to be able to introduce our special guest this week. It is my privilege to introduce... Uh, Our guest this week, she has a postdoctoral fellowship in neurorehabilitation psychology and received a Bachelor of Arts, a Master's degree, and a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Kansas. She has spent nearly two decades focused on the needs of those on the front lines. Her passion is to help those who help others by providing the critical tools needed to navigate the stressors that they experience on a daily basis. She's also conducted extensive research on the prevention of PTSD, effective treatment modalities for first responders, and building resilience in first responders as well, among many, many other things. So please welcome our special guest this week, Dr. Jenny Prohaska, to the program. Hi, Jenny.
3: Hi, I'm super excited to be here. It's awesome.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Um, do, do folks call you Dr. Jenny or Jenny or Jennifer? or What do you prefer?
3: Uh, Dr. Jenny is usually what happens. Yeah. Uh-huh, that's I, like, I kind
0: of like Dr. Jenny. Yeah. yeah. So I would love to hear your squiggly line story, Dr. Jenny. Tell me how on earth did you end up here? In Kansas City in private practice working with first responders. Where did you start and how did you end up here?
3: Oh my gosh, my squiggly line story. Got it. Okay, so um so I always was fascinated in just humans in general. Like I, I love kind of figuring out how the mind works. And so I went to you know, I didn't went I I got lucky. I got into a great grad school. KU is an excellent grad school for what I do. So uh, I got into the KU clinical psych grad school program, and I was just super lucky from that. And then I did a lot of, like, health psych stuff when I was there. They're pretty health psych focused. So doing stuff like the brain and spinal cord and, and, and spinal cord injuries. And so I got hired on as an intern and then also as a fellow at KU Med. Mm -hmm. And I got to learn all sorts of cool stuff. I got to work on burn unit, trauma unit, ICU. I freaking loved it. I loved working (laughs) trauma cases. And I know it sounds super morbid, but I'm also the gal that falls asleep to, like, law and order. Like, I freaking (laughs) love crime shows. Like, that's me. So um, it was a super great fit. And then I got hired on as faculty, finally, at KU Med. And they kind of put me at the, like, I don't want to say lowest lady on the totem pole position, but the one that not necessarily everyone loves, which is where you have to work with. Uh, Mostly terminally ill patients, cancer patients, stuff like that, which honestly was the best learning experience because I learned what a real problem is, you know, like, yeah, I'll say it put everything into perspective, but I didn't necessarily love it. So I I lasted about nine months, got super burnout, kind of depressed, honestly, just because my personality is a go personality. I love moving forward. And so um, it was kind of hard for me to sit in just like the death and dying stuff. And I have a like, heart for people that can do that. because it take its special personality, you know, but sure. um, so I just kind of one day up and quit a little bit and just said, <laughs> not even a little bit. Okay. Up and quit. Yeah, um, and, it's a
0: binary and, thing. You yeah. either do it
3: or you don't. Yeah, yeah it's, it's totally best. accurate. Okay. <laughs> all right. You called me out there. Um, and so I decided, you know what? go back into working in trauma and I found something luckily that was working with first responders and it was more like a forensic stuff and I was like I'll try it I'll see if I like it I freaking loved it Um, I don't think I could ever go back to working kind of anything else I I loved it so I spent a few years in a private practice and then I broke out on my own about 2016 and formed my own practice and so Um, I primarily work with first responders. That's everybody from cop world all over to like EMS and fire and paramedics and dispatchers and a little bit of like frontline medical staff, so your ER staff, nurses. And I just don't think I could ever go back. I just, I love it. So that's kind of how I got here. That's, it's not super, super squiggly. It's a little bit like, um, ooh, hard left, a hard left there. But, but that's how I got here. It's really
0: unexpected though, when you talked about, I was working with terminal cancer patients and whatnot. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to do trauma. It seemed like the natural thing was like, I'm going to work with children or I'm going to work with something else a little lighter, but instead you sort of jumped from one ship to the next
3: one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, I think it was, honestly, it was actually kind of traumatizing to me to kind of work with kind of death and dying stuff a little bit more. And so for me, I was like, you know what, I just, my mindset, my personality is kind of, I'm a doer, I'm a go-getter. So I wanted to work on getting people well. And so it, it was just a mindset shift and right. so yeah and so I was, I'm just I, I took a little impulsive decision I just went so yeah <laughs> it is what it is
0: yeah you know, some, of, some of my best decisions have been that way it's like you know what I'm just going to do this thing and I'm not sure why but I'm, it's going to work yeah, out because I have this your gut. gut feeling to do the thing mm-hmm. you said you've always been interested in the mind is this something that you had as a child or how, how does one decide to do that
3: oh gosh Um. I think that's a that's a good question um I think for me, I always wanted to figure out why people were the way they were. And I also think I might've been a little bit more empathetic or overly sensitive kid. And so I was trying to hide some of that, but that also meant that I had to be kind of vigilant, I think, about what was going on with other people. And so I was more vigilant. And I just think that kind of turned itself into a little bit of a science project in my own mind. And then I started to be really good at reading people, I think, and then I naturally gravitated towards, oh, weird, becoming a clinical psychologist. Right
0: yeah yeah I you know I often have that feeling of why are you acting that way what is wrong with you? <laughs> a lot of people do <laughs> yes I need to understand but uh, I certainly don't have the background that that you do mm-hmm. um so you started uh, you said you were drawn to um, working with traumas and that then inspired you to start your own practice yeah
3: yeah yeah, yeah. so so I think like I found it fascinating how, it's one of those kind of clinical illnesses or, or maladies that um, people can be totally fine and then totally not fine by one episode. Sure. And that is such a, that's such a huge, like, uncontrollable thing. Trauma that happens to people for a lot of them is uncontrollable. And so it's a great mystery how you can go from one state to another, and that mystery was really kind of gravitated uh, gravitated towards that. And then I also thought it was pretty cool how the brain is heavily involved in trauma. So...
0: Can you tell me a little bit
3: about that? Go into that sort of mind-body connection? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So well, we always know, we've always known for the longest time, since at least the 50s, that how you operate psychologically directly affects your physical health. Um, So if you think about it, when people are under stress, what most likely happens to them physically? Well, they're more likely to get colds, they're more likely to get illness, they're more likely to have aches and pains, muscle tension, headaches, etc. The body and the mind are not separate. And so when people go through trauma in particular, their body can drastically have these responses Uh, pain conditions get worse Um, they get incredibly lethargic sleep problems all this other stuff happens just merely from experiencing something on this planet and so um, there's such a heavy connection there and I just it's fascinating to me how does, how does one put
0: those pieces together? Because all those things you describe sort of make, make sense to me. It's like when you experience trauma and your brain is experiencing this, you have physical symptoms, but the symptoms you just, just described seem unrelated somehow. It's like, well, I can't sleep. Right. It's because I just had this thing. How do, how do you sort of start to piece that together to figure out, you know, what the root cause was?
3: Yeah. So so for me, you know, that meant a ton of research on my own, a ton of reading, a ton of reading on my own, looking things up. But if you think about sleep, for example, this is kind of a cool thing because it directly relates to trauma. So if you think about sleep and how, well, when is your body most at danger to being reattacked? Well, wouldn't it be when you're in deep sleep? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're, I mean, if you guys don't know, when you get into super deep sleep, you're supposed to have full body paralysis so you don't act out your dreams and this kind of stuff. Right. Well, this really cool thing happens in your brain where uh, to keep yourself safe so you don't act out your dreams, you actually go into paralysis. Well, the problem is if you're traumatized, when you go into paralysis, your body also sends out a signal danger, danger, danger. You can't move. You are now more vulnerable to attack. And so people with trauma disorders oftentimes have horrible sleep quality. They might sleep like even maybe eight hours, which would be normal for people, Sure. and yet their sleep quality is horrible, and so they'll never feel rested because they never get into that restful stage of sleep where they can totally relax because as soon as they hit there, the, the body goes, danger, danger, Will Robinson, let's get out, let's bail, right? <laughs> and so we're waking up, right? Right. Yeah, so that's a perfect example of how like, a trauma experience stored in your mind, your experience directly affects your body.
0: And so. is that where that the that term sleep paralysis comes from? Where you sort of you sort of wake up but you can't move. Oh that, yeah, that kind of
3: thing. So sleep. Also, I would tell you, I'm not a, I'm not 100% a sleep expert, okay. but I will tell you, <laughs> like sleep is like the the coolest mystery. It is like I don't know if we'll ever figure out exactly all the components of sleep. Sure. Um, but that sleep paralysis is super important, so you don't end up you know acting out some crazy wild dream. <laughs> right. Yes. I mean, it could be fun for video, but. Not from Rio.
0: <laughs> right. right. A great YouTube channel. <laughs> exactly. The things I did when I was asleep. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are already coming up on our very first break, so I'm going to take this opportunity to take a brief station break, and we will be back with more with Dr. Jenny. And we are back with the Every Woman program. This is Rachel. We have Dr. Jenny Prochaska here in the studio, and Una and Fiona are joining me via Zoom. Uh, so we were delving a little bit into that sort of mind-body connection and how trauma to you know, the mind can affect your body and with sleep. Um, I assume that also is, is one of the factors that goes into uh, PTSD as well.
3: Absolutely. So we do know that there's physiological things that happen with trauma, and I'll be also the first to tell you we don't know all the things that happen. We've got some pretty decent theories and hypotheses that have been well sussed out in the you know research and literature, but for the most part, we don't know all the details. We don't know all the pieces and parts. Uh, we do know that when the nervous system gets activated, so when you feel that like fight or flight sense, if you have, feel like you were in you know harm's way, danger, death, et cetera, is upon you, um, some really kind of scary things do happen. And so your nervous system responds really sharply, and that that is actually kind of what changes the body. So your body will really learn a nervous system signal. So say um, it's a person walking down an alley at you, and that's what your trauma was, something happened at the end of that. Um, The next time you're in a grocery store, for example, and somebody you don't know is walking towards you, your nervous system can respond exactly the same as it did. Wow. Yes, exactly. So your nervous system learns things because it wants to keep you alive if it ever happens again, but it can kind of overlearn And so then what we have, what we deal with is like people getting triggered, as you might have heard that term a lot. Sure. By stuff that's actually innocuous or not scary. But your nervous system is always on this like, you know, go time, basically. Right.
0: I think Fiona had a question from Zoom. Go ahead, Fiona. So
1: a lot of the time, those reactions that we have, all the things that you described for the stresses earlier, about how that affects your digestive system and your muscles tighten up, and even stuff as small as it's diverting the blood flow. All of those were things to help us survive when we're attacked and have to physically respond and might end up wounded and bleeding. So those used to be huge things for survival for us, individually and as a species, but our bad situations these days don't tend to end up with people bleeding. And from what we've seen from animals in the wild, they recover from this shock faster than we do. They don't tend to end up sort of sitting and ruminating on it and going, oh, I could have handled that re- reaction and the fight with the lion better earlier and keeping on chewing over their trauma and the events like we tend to do and bring out that trauma and that pain for ourselves. So how, how can people turn off and let go of the trauma event quickly enough to stop their stress response from just turning their body into a genuine mess of nerves.
3: That is a super, that's actually an excellent question. So um, what you're kind of commenting on is, yes, our, all of the things that are supposed to happen when we have a near-death experience or a trauma, all of those things are designed to keep our body alive in the moment. But what happens is because we're humans and we have actually these really complicated brains that have been, I mean, our, our frontal lobes in particular, which are the front part of our, our brain, um, are very well developed compared to animals. And so what happens is we obsess about stuff and we ruminate, like you said, like kind of think over and over and over and over again. And actually our brain is built for being able to basically overthink things to the point where we hope that we can learn it for the next time. Like, the next time the lion comes at me, I'm going to do this instead. And so what you kind of commented on is exactly how our brains are built, except now it's kind of working against us a little bit when we have, like, actual PTSD develop. So now we're overthinking it. So, um, which is a natural tendency for humans, so nothing's wrong with that, but what we usually end up doing with that in therapy, um, one of the most scientifically validated therapies for this is actually we take those ruminative thoughts and we basically put them down paper and we start processing through them like okay well okay you're so you're obsessing about this let's kind of talk about why we're obsessing about it and can we come to terms with the emotion behind whatever caused our trauma so say it's i felt out of control okay and so what else happened when you felt out of control well i felt like i'll never have control again oh okay well let's test that theory out so that's your belief Let's go ahead and test it out in the real world. Let's go ahead and test it out in a different setting. Let's go ahead and see how out of control you really were actually in the initial trauma. And sometimes people will realize, well, actually, I I didn't have control but then as soon as I was capable of gaining control, I took it back again. And so with a therapist, and this is obviously something to do with a therapist, that's a lot of what we work through is taking those obsessive ruminative thoughts and making them manageable and also kind of closing the chapter on a few things. Like, oh, my belief wasn't necessarily as accurate as I thought it was. So, And that helps a lot of people, actually. That makes a lot of sense. And
1: um, that actual control piece, I, I imagine that's a very dangerous thought for people because people often try and exert too much control in their lives, right? Like, obviously, follows of what they're eating and, and they analytics with their analytics is there and control and they one of the of their life and control
0: when they eat and whether they eat. Yeah. So they think that they, yes, they always Yeah. yeah. Um, and some, just uh, technically, something is going on with your microphone that you're kind so of going in and out, it sounded like it was getting covered up or something. So I'm not sure what's what's going on with that exactly. But
3: so i think what she was commenting on actually i'll it i'll kind of reiterate it is that um humans first of all really won't control that's a normal thing but it can go awry like if we feel like we're out of control in one area we'll double down and try to grab it in another and so i think like she was commenting on food or eating disorders like mm-hmm. sometimes trauma yeah. will cause or spark another psychiatric illness like an eating disorder so wow. need for control but i had the i had a i had a advisor, when I first started as a therapist, that told me something that I'll never forget related to control. I think it's helpful for your viewers and for everything is, or your listeners, is listeners, listeners, yes. listeners, viewers, <laughs> listeners, whatever, yeah, your, um, audience. Your, your audience is the healthiest place you can be is wanting control in your life. Cause that's normal. Seeking control where you can get it. But then this is the catch being able to accept that you'll actually never have it and being okay with it oof, oof yes, that is right. a big catch yeah exactly <laughs> no. that's the part
0: yeah I don't like right. that last part
3: I know most people don't <laughs> but when you can get there it's almost zen like you know no, so, I can
0: see that yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's also interesting how you bring up um, memory in general because you know our memories as humans is faulty too because our memories are often colored by the emotion of the event and what we think really happened may not have actually you know happened in that
3: way too. Correct. Yes, yes, yes. So actually, when we look at trauma and PTSD, we actually kind of consider it almost a memory disorder in the sense that things get skewed while it's happening. We add pieces in, we kick pieces out, and so we don't have a cohesive memory. Sometimes we'll only store, you know, the feeling, and sometimes we'll only store, like, the narrative or, like, the police report, almost, of what happened, the who, what, where, when, why, and how, and we'll be totally detached from our emotions. And so therapy is oftentimes involved in, like, and kind of the healing process is taking the narrative, the who, what, where, when, why, and how, and melding it with how it made us feel to make a more cohesive memory, almost like we're zipping it up and we're storing it in a container that makes sense. And it's also when you take the who, what, where, when, why, and how, and you meld it with what you were thinking and feeling, it's almost like putting it, you know, one of those space saver vacuum bags, you know? Yes. It's like that. It's like taking all your trauma and you put it in a bag and you suck all the air out. And now it gets smaller and more containable. Right. And you know where to put it. And you know you can get it out if you need to for whatever reason, if you need to think through it or process it again. So I like to use a lot of analogies. Therapy is like taking your trauma, putting it in a space paper bag, and making it as small a pot as possible.
0: <laughs> well, plus it's putting it in a controlled environment where you can actually yes. point at it and look at it and put it on the shelf and think about it without you know experiencing it again.
3: 100%. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Huh. I need to get some more space saver bags. I
3: Don't think. we all? Yes, <laughs> it's been a rough few years. <laughs>
0: absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, is is that one of the reasons why traumatic events um, affect people in different ways? Like, two people can go through the sort of the same event, and one person is then you know irreparably harmed or has PTSD, and the other person is like no, it's, I'm okay.
3: Yeah. So everybody's got their own, own kind of way or lens in which they look through the world. And there's some lenses that are a little bit um, more healthy than others. Some of the things we know, first of all, is if you feel competent in the world to begin with, if you feel like no matter what kind of crosses my pathway, even if it's rough, even if it's awful, I'll probably be able to get through it. If you're confident like that and you have some general ways about how you feel about yourself, then For the most part, people do okay, Um, and so that's one thing, and then we also have different personality differences, we have genetics that actually plays a factor, we have one of the huge things we're finding out more and more is that the closer your social group and social support, the more likely you are to recover better. So that's huge, and that's actually been kind of stressful in the last few years is as society gets more kind of individualized, people's social groups aren't as tight, and that's actually a huge resiliency factor against developing trauma, and so it's a struggle. Well,
0: and during this pandemic when we all sort of, our social groups got pulled away from each other and were interacting via Zoom and a level of abstraction, and they're, you know, because the Zoom meetings are great because you can see the person, but you're abstracted from that person and that contact is kind of lost
3: yeah i'll argue all day long that it is not the same you know and so i mean it's it's better than nothing but man there's something about just being in a space with somebody that makes people feel safer yeah absolutely
0: Mm -hmm. um so uh you touched on it a little bit but how how do you prevent ptsd for those whose job it is to be you know a Mm -hmm. frontline first responder Mm -hmm. and it seems like their job is you know can be chaotic and tragedy is sort of part of it how how does one arm
3: themselves against it Mm -hmm. that's a great question so at our firm at our practice what we do is we kind of do the we do the treatment side so after people have had you know kind of accumulated trauma but we also do the prevention side and the prevention side i think the earlier you start in life the better so we know that Some things that will help you is developing strong social support. We know that if your family communication and your close relationships are really healthy and they have really nice depth and, like, you can talk, like, really close emotional intimacy relationships, those are protective. So we help people develop those early. Um, And then the other things that we work on are things like um, making sure that you're interpreting things appropriately. So if something really horrible happens in front of you, if you claim full responsibility for everything that you just rolled up on, for example, say you're you're a a firefighter and you're rolling up on something that already happened, it's more important that you think about the items in that situation that you could control and not necessarily focusing on the ones outside of your control. And that is huge for people yeah. anywhere. You don't have to be a first responder. That just matters in general, right. I think. So teaching them like like some ways to think about stuff is a preventative, and then also teaching them the importance of social support. And then a big thing is avoid alcohol, avoid excessive amounts of caffeine. Like that will just fry your nervous system long term. Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, that's
3: interesting because you,
0: you you sort of brought up. Uh, earlier the the idea of how you know how you experience things and being able to have that sort of chosen family to support you is huge Mm -hmm. and it goes back to that idea of control that you can never really have control over everything no matter how much you want it and me as a as a Virgo that's you know that's my whole life it's like I want to control all the things all the time I want it all to be in perfect order but yeah it never is
3: it never is it's it's such a it's a goal you will never obtain right and so it's like oh it's cute you know that you have it but like (laughs) once you come to terms with like that ain't ever gonna happen you know i feel like my best workers out there my best first responders that stay healthy out there are the ones who have really come to terms with i can't control everything but the things i did control i did well on those are the ones that stay healthy
0: no that's a really great perspective to look Mm -hmm. at it yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting because i know with my work in the arts too we're often trying to create you know the best thing and the most beautiful thing and we have this pie in the sky idea of a thing we want but we can you can never really get there because you run out of time or money and yeah that that mindset of being able to let go of that control is is really powerful absolutely
3: absolutely. no matter what you do
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) So how does, how does one then become more resilient in the face of stress and inherent danger? Like you know that you're, maybe you're new on the job as a first responder and so you know this job's going to be stressful and there's going to be danger. How does one sort of gird themselves to be more resilient?
3: Yeah, so we, we really, really, really encourage um, diversifying your personal life. So people who become all one thing, they tend to get overly stressed. So, if you, are, if you put all your eggs in one basket, for example, okay. well, if that basket starts to weaken and then the handle's creaky and all of a sudden you feel it tilt, like, and everything spills out, you are not going to recover well. But if you've got eggs in other baskets, if you are more diversified as a, as a human if something goes bad in one area, you're going to be able to recover better. And so a lot of us need to work on this in general, but first responders in particular need to work on it because their life can become their job right? because of so many factors. Many first responders will tell you, even when they're off-duty, they're mentally not off-duty because they're always scanning for a threat or they're always feeling like they may have to respond to danger if something were to happen, even when they're off. Sure. So, yeah, helping them diversify is a big thing. And then also teaching them the language of... Um, teaching them how to communicate around bad things that happen to them, not shutting off, not isolating. So one of the things that I do as a psychologist with many of my agencies is I actually go into the agency after a bad thing has happened, Mm -hmm. and I start walking them through what's called kind of a debriefing process where I'm teaching them repetitively over and over, critical incident after critical incident, um, hey, this thing happened, I'm going to show you the way to talk about it so that even if something else stresses you out in life, you can use this pattern and put language around your stress and that actually in itself, being able to communicate what's stressing you out, huge resiliency factor. And a lot of people, especially nowadays, don't have that coming into the field.
0: Sure. Yeah. You no, know, I, I can completely see, especially if you're you know, a firefighter or a police officer, that becomes your identity. You're, mm-hmm. you know, so-and-so the police officer. So, yeah, mm-hmm. building up a diverse sort of off-time has to has to help absolutely, yeah.
3: especially if there's like things in there that make you less stressed. Because we want somebody to move from high stress where their nervous system is activated all the time, even just driving around if they're not on a call, it's still activated. They're getting ready, they're prepared to go. It's like go time, no matter what. Right. Helping them like move from on duty to off duty as fast as possible. So that's sometimes stuff like. You know, don't wear a uniform home. Change out at work. Drive home, you know, right. like, and drive home and don't listen to Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> listen to a comedy <laughs> podcast. You know what right. I mean? Like, get your mindset right, you know? Switch off and on as fast as possible. And then in your downtime, don't play hours and hours of video games. Go socialize. So, right. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Fiona's got a question. Yeah. Go ahead, Fiona. I think you're <laughs> muted still. There we go. Yeah. We can
1: switch to a different machine. because of the sound issues earlier but my question is really about a lot of people have a social network who could help them but we all tend to worry about being a burden to our friends and how do you convince people whether they're first responders or everyday people that talking to their friends about an issue that's stressing them out or even just asking an opinion on something isn't being a burden
2: to their friends, how do you help people get past that huge first step? Well, let, let, let me add something. I always tell my friends of when I start to become friends with someone that I am going to be a serious burden to you. You are going to drop me as a friend, and so just just plan your future strategy accordingly. <laughs> you,
3: you preemptively, you warn them. You get the warning shot. I like it. <laughs>
2: okay. That's I'm awesome. actually not even joking. Uh, Rachel will attest to that. Uh, That's
0: I can I can vouch for that actually after a few months being on the show and and becoming friends with both in and Fiona that's that she said those exact words to me.
3: So, yeah, yeah. Well, so I think that that's good. Is, well, first of all, whenever you form a new friendship, I think that's like, you know, you've got a first few months, of it's it's just like dating, you know? You've, you've got a first few months of kind of figuring each other out. And I think it's actually okay to go ahead and just preemptively say, hey, I'm one of those people that needs to talk out my stuff a lot. And I, I am one pe- a person that needs to gravitate towards people who can respond back to me. Uh, so yes, preemptively doing that. And I'll say, like, I think that people don't realize... Like, just as much as you like to talk to other people, people like to talk at you, too. So, I mean, no one's needs are unique, is what I'm saying. We all have kind of the basic general human needs. And one of our basic human needs is to be validated by other people. So that means talking to other people. And so no one's immune to that. Almost everybody needs that. I haven't really met anybody that doesn't need a little bit of validation from another person. So, um, and then also like have a bigger group of friends. Don't have one person that's not a one-stop shop. Like no one's got a Walmart friend. You need a lot of different (laughs) friends, right? You need, I'd like to go to this store for this and this store for this, like diversify your friend group. And that way I think you'll realize like you're not dumping on the same person every time. So,
0: Wow. That's a really good point. Walmart (laughs) friends.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that don't exist, you know. No. Walmart you can get everything, but yeah, nothing's of the highest quality, you know.
0: <laughs> right.
3: I have to say, I think a lot of
1: people like doing things for their friends and like helping their friends, unless they're always the one doing it. But few people tend to realise that their friends would probably also like doing things for them and feel that they were adding value, but they don't want to be a burden, so they don't open up and they don't ask.
3: Right, right. The, like reciprocal friendships are critical. And if your friend can't be reciprocal, then, you know, you move them outside your inner circle a little bit because healthy friends are reciprocal. And so it, it always sucks when you got to do that. But sometimes you do have to move somebody from the inner circle who you would want to rely on everything, every every day for everything. You got to move them out a little bit. And that's OK because the world doesn't like a vacuum. So it'll fill that hole with something. Hopefully better. Yeah. Mm hmm.
0: So w- one of the other things you, you do is you, you counsel folks in the hiring of first responders. Um, so how do, how do you go about... Doing that
3: yeah 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 so um especially in like the state of kansas and, and i definitely in the state of kansas i do i work kansas missouri and nebraska so okay. um in the state of kansas in particular it's required for anybody entering law enforcement to have a psychological evaluation oh. um, usually almost always pre-hire but definitely within the first year of employment uh, and then in missouri pretty much all your agencies on the missouri side do it i don't know necessarily if, know if it's required by law but i uh, pretty much everybody does uh, and so what i'm doing at That point is, I'm trying to select out the best healthy candidates possible. And so that means psychological tests, it means interviews, it means talking a lot about their background, mental health history, how they view people, how they view people with mental illness, how they view people that um, have committed crimes, why people are in jail. So you get to talk to them a lot about kind of who they are as people, but then we also are screening for some certain things related to making sure we put healthy people out on the street. So.
0: Sure. Mm-hmm. How, how do you how do you sort of see through folks, you know, who are trying, you know, to get a job or they already have a job and they want to keep their job and so they're going to try to say all the right things? Like, how do you kind of work through that?
3: Well, first of all, a girl never reveals all her secrets, so I <laughs> okay. can't tell you all the things. But, <laughs> but It's was,
0: just between you and I.
3: Oh, and whoever's listening. <laughs> oh, right. Um, so I will say um, that is what 12 years of school is for okay. and a lot of experience. And one of the things that I love doing in my work is I actually really, really love getting out and doing ride alongs so I still do ride alongs oh, wow! and and those have been the best experiences because you really hands-on get to know what it takes to make a great a great officer or a great firefighter or a great paramedic or dispatcher um and man those jobs are some of the hardest jobs um I don't necessarily know if I could ever be like a cop, for example, because you have to multitask between so many things sure. and you've got to be everything to everyone. And, and dispatchers? Oh my gosh. First of all, my little ADD brain could not handle it because you've got to be real focused <laughs> and attentive to the detail, which I am not. Right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, these are jobs that require so much mental demand and especially when you're working with humans, you've got to have emotional intelligence and that is just sure. so important. Yeah.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. So um, besides doing these ride-alongs and things, what, what other things do you do to sort of try to stay on top of your game and and keep up with, you know, what the changing nature of of the job?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, a lot of it is actually, unfortunately, because I would love to turn down the volume on media a lot, but a lot of it is just kind of paying attention to the cultural vibe that's happening sure. in, in the industry. Um, I do a lot of I still to this day do a lot of like education for myself and go to go to go to classes and go to trainings and, you know, all across the United States about um, basically how to select the best people for this industry, but then also how to be the best therapist possible. Because I still have my hand in both. Not only just evals, but I still do a lot of treatment, which actually is kind of where my heart really is, is, right. is doing the treatment of people. So um, so just tons of, I read uh, a ton. Uh, let's be honest, I don't actually have time to read, so I listen <laughs> to Audible. I do, That's where I get my stuff. So, right. um, And I just try to stay up to date on the literature.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Um,
0: so, tell me, tell me this. Uh, how how is it doing doing ride-alongs and whatnot? Do you, how do you sort of separate? The trauma and the sort of chaos that the folks that you're treating from yourself, it, it seems like it would be pretty easy to sort of get sucked into yeah. their kind of experience as well.
3: Yeah, I get that question a lot actually about how do you kind of keep it separate, you know, because I, I am exposed to a significant amount of bad things and sure. uh, the nature. And now it's secondhand, you know, a lot of times it's being told to me um, because we're doing treatment, or even when ride alongs happen, yes, I see bad things. Um, I'll be honest with you. My coping mechanism, a lot, is that I'm an intellectualizer, so I look at everything like a science project. <laughs> and then when I'm in therapy, they're telling me bad things, but I'm actually thinking of it almost like a puzzle. Like, oh. how do I pull this thing that they told me, you know, two months ago, and this thing that we know we're working on skill wise, this is our goal. How do I pull it together, even though they're telling me this new trauma? And so that that keeps my brain so busy. I think I don't take in the you know the gruesome, the gory stuff very well. I, that's sure. just my mind. Plus, I grew up on, like, again, law and order and, like, forensic
0: files. So it, well, I acclimated. Right. But you, you also described yourself as being very empathetic, too, yeah. to start with, and wanting to help. So yeah. it, I, it would seem like that would be a tough sort of transition for you mm-hmm. to, to kind of, yeah, you know, be more scientific yeah. and kind of divorce yourself from that part of your.
3: Yeah. I use it like rocket fuel. Like, I use my empathy like rocket fuel. I'm like, yes, this is where I'm going to plug it in. And it, it, comes, it becomes the puzzle, you know? Like, how can I throw empathy in here in a meaningful way and put these puzzle pieces together so that it's delivered in a way where my patient can hear it? Wow.
0: Yeah, I love that.
3: <laughs> Um, so one of
0: the other things I know that you do is you help, you, you teach um, folks who have these jobs to recognize distress in their peers as well. Yes. Folks who may be just fine, seemingly, but underlying, they have some sort of underlying trauma that's happening. How does mm-hmm. one do that?
3: Yeah. Well, I'm going to back up a little bit and say like, one of the, the not great things is we, we do know that. Out of working first responders, approximately one in five would meet diagnostic criteria for PTSD. Wow. So we have a lot of stress out there. Um, but I also think of PTSD kind of like body weight. So if you are like five pounds overweight, is that that big of a deal? No. Not really. You might notice it during swimsuit season. That's it. You know, you just wait for sweater season and you move on. And <laughs> only it was that easy. Right. But but um, PTSD is similar. You can have five pounds of PTSD and never notice it, but as you know, if you're five hundred pounds overweight, that could kill you. Right. Well, if you've got five hundred pounds of PTSD, that's gonna take a human life. And so my job is to get it as close to zero as possible, right? But when we are talking about recognizing it in our colleagues, I bring that up because um, we need, just need to be able to pay attention to like, when is this person's five pounds becoming 15 pounds? And so what they look for, what I teach them to look for is things like um, increased irritability is a really high sign that somebody's not coping well.
2: Uh-huh.
3: And a change from baseline is like your biggest tell. So someone really social, and then all of a sudden they slide into not being a social, or they always were at lunch, and now they don't attend lunch anymore. That's the stuff that I tell them to watch out for. And then we have actually some interventions that we teach people mm-hmm. about how to intervene as a peer to get your folks help. So,
0: wow, that's it. Seems like it would. I don't know, that seems like a hard thing to, to sort of recognize. And it's like, is, you know, just missing lunch a couple of times, is that really a sign of what's going on? and yeah. yeah.
3: So I think that that's where, also as a culture, we're trying to get a shift to happen, and it is happening slowly. You know, cultural shifts take years. But uh, helping people understand, like, Having great connections with your peers already will help it help you be able to intervene if you see a problem down the road. And the culture is very much shifting where they are starting to hold themselves and others more accountable for their mental health oh, and it's awesome. Really good. It's yeah. keeping me super busy, but <laughs> you know, but but it's pretty cool to see a colleague, you know, call out another cop, which is really hard to do yeah. and say, "Hey, bud, I love you, but but you're being way more mean than you used to be, or, hey, I love you, but what's the deal? You're not answering up as quick as you used to on stuff. Right. And it's now becoming kind of a norm, and I love seeing that, because it means we're going to have healthier people.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think Fiona has a question again. Hey, Fiona.
1: I was going to follow on that and say, even in the corporate world, where there's annual training for various things, I'm seeing more of that. Like, when we had our annual training last time about violence in the workplace instead of just telling you where to go and hide or what number to call and not to talk to the press afterwards it had things like you can head this off and these might be warning signs and this could be a sign that your colleague is in trouble and we can help and we can intervene and we can get them help before anything comes to that and ruins everyone's lives and it also had tips for spotting if someone is suffering from domestic violence and suggestions for what to do if you wanted to get them help instead of just go and run and hide or hide under a desk and be very quiet. There was uh, actual proactive tips and things to actually help people.
3: 100%, which makes them feel way more empowered to do it anyway when we're teaching people how to intervene before a tragedy happens. Man, that just makes that gives people a sense of control. And that's also like I said earlier, it's a basic psychological need. We all want to feel a sense of control. So if we feel like there's things we can do to help our colleagues ahead of time, we're going to be more empowered to help them. Yeah, we just are.
0: I think it it also must help just overall morale to know that your peers have your back in a way and that they're looking out for you.
3: 100%, especially in industries where if you're out, you know, on the street or you're a firefighter, you're going into a dangerous situation, you want to make sure people have your back. And so it really kind of builds the morale overall, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, we are coming up on our final break of the
0: hour. So I'm going to go ahead and take that station break and we will be right back with more with Dr. Jenny. And we are back on the Every Woman program. This is Rachel. I am here in the studio with Doctor. Doctor. Jenny Prohaska, and also joined by Una and Fiona uh, from Zoom. So uh, we were talking a little bit about um, peer support and how to recognize when one of your coworkers uh, might be in distress. Um, but how does one then go about engaging that person if you see something yeah. that's that's up?
3: Yes. So this is like the hardest part is how do I initiate that first conversation if I'm really worried about somebody and I'll say, well, first thing, if you have an established relationship with them already, that's way much that's easier from the get go. You know, if you kind of already know them pretty well, Mm -hmm. Uh, then I would say, here's my thing. Um, I always take the tone of like, hey, I've noticed. And then you say fill in the blank with whatever you've noticed. Uh, I care about you so much. What's going on? And maybe that's just, you know, some weird, quirky thing that you just started doing. But I've noticed this thing. And I like to point to something kind of tangible sometimes if I can. Like, I've noticed you don't seem to be kind of as smiley or you're not joining us as lunch as, at lunch as often as you do. I'm just kind of wondering how you're doing. And then they might give you some blow-off answer. My favorite is, I'm fine. I'm fine is the other <laughs> F word in my world. Um, it drives me crazy. Sure. Uh, and then I say, okay, Okay, well, I'm thinking about you, and I just noticed. And so what you're doing is you're kind of leaving the door open. And eventually, when you leave the door open long enough, and you kind of bring it up enough times, they'll walk through it. And when they walk through it, that's when you kind of hit them with resources, I'd say. Or like, okay, well, let's just sit down and talk about it then. I want to hear more about this. What do you need from me as a friend or colleague, you know? Sure. So be patient. I think people sometimes, when you initially confront them about stuff, they get a little like, oof, oh, my, I thought I was hiding it pretty well, you right. know? Right. Uh, It's cool. Just lay the groundwork, be patient, and and just leave the door open. Say, hey, if you ever need to talk about anything, I'm here. And you might say that 10 freaking times, and then on the 11th time, they actually take you up on it. And that's the good part, you know. So just making that pathway available. So that's my thing. Mm -hmm. Great. Go ahead, Fiona. Uh,
1: How do you help people when that person who said, I'm fine which I also know that the first letter stands for something, and then the rest of it stands for insecure, neurotic, and emotional. <laughs> but how do you help them if that person actually honestly believes that they're fine, and their mind is basically lying to them, that everything's fine, they're just toddling along just like they normally are, and there's absolutely nothing going wrong, then the rest of their body is basically screaming at them and saying, actually, this house is on
3: fire, wake up. Right, right. And that can be super frustrating for the person watching that happen. And so um, I'll say, is it Hansel and Gretel with the breadcrumbs? Was that Hansel and Gretel? Yes. Yes. I I clearly am out of date with my child books, but in my child (laughs) stories, but this is where you kind of leave the breadcrumbs. And so you say, you say, oh, okay, well, well, I just noticed you weren't smiling as much. And then maybe like a few days later, you say, oh man, I really missed you at that, that function. Um, I really thought you were going to be there. Uh, hope everything's okay. And so you're leaving these little like behavioral breadcrumbs basically to lead them to a trail of like oh yeah, maybe I'm not fine. And so it's all about patience. We all want to like smack everybody over the head with a, you know, a list of everything that's going wrong, but sure. Take your time, be patient. So that's my thing. That's what I would say.
0: How how do you get Seemingly, sort of macho, very strong men, mostly you know, cops and firefighters and stuff, to go to that level of communication. Because what you're describing sounds like how I talk to my other girlfriends. Yeah. How does that work?
3: (laughs) Okay, so this is where I'd say, me being a woman in this industry that's primarily male dominated, it's about like about 89 to 90 percent male. um, is kind of a helpful thing. I think people are more likely to talk to me because I'm a woman. But I will also say when I'm in session. Uh, I have a little bit more of my masculine qualities that come out a little bit. And I'm being like really peasy on here, but I cuss a little bit more, you know, and like I speak the lingo a little bit more. And I think that that helps them let their guard down a little bit. Sure. And then also sometimes I will just kind of go with my intuition and call somebody out on something in session and just hope that I was kind of reading myself right. And so that, that works pretty well. Um, and I honestly think that many of them, if I if I approach them kind of like with that more masculine tone, but then in a female body, it's, it, they register a little bit easier and they can, their walls come down a little faster. So, yeah. That's
0: very interesting. Yeah. D- did you have a question, uh, Una? I saw you had your hand up.
2: Um, I was going to say that, uh, it was when we were talking about noticing that someone wasn't smiling and so forth, that just, it was a sidebar when I started my transition, and actually officially was on the hormones uh, for my transition, and all of a sudden the world seemed bright and happy, and I was still in stealth at work, but I was getting the right medication I needed for being intersex and, uh, and, and the trans person at the same time. That I was, my b- boss came to me and said, you're smiling all the time. Just sitting there at your desk. You're smiling. What's going on? And I'm like, nothing. I'm just, just happy. The very next day, I got sent for drug testing.
3: Oops. <laughs> well, that like, can happen, yeah. too. <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: Yeah, that's a, that's, yeah, we would hope that that wouldn't happen too often, but, you know, I, I think that sometimes people, a huge change from baseline actually is actually a red flag for some things. So, I, was,
2: yeah. Yeah, you're right. It was a huge change from baseline. I had someone tell me that they really couldn't remember the last time they'd seen me smile uh, because I was just always in total work focus mode to avoid uh, trying to kill myself, basically. All right. And all of a sudden, the fact that I'm smiling and, Hey everyone, look, I brought coffee and donuts. And they're like, what's the catch? What's the catch? Which one's the poison donut?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you can't really blame them. Right. So we have like about a minute or two left here on, on our on our program, do you have any sort of final thoughts? Do you have any sort of resources or advice or something that has helped you?
3: Yes, absolutely. So I would say like, if you are even considering, hey, maybe there's some stuff I need to work through, one of my go-to books that I love that has really helped me even as a therapist that I recommend to a lot of patients, uh, it's kind of new, it's called What Happened to You? And it is a book by Bruce Perry, who's a um, MD. And then actually, you guys are gonna laugh at me, Oprah is also involved, so she is listed as an author as well, nice. and honestly, it's an excellent book. It it goes everything from childhood trauma all the way up through exactly what's happening neurologically, and it is a stellar book, and so that's one of my go-tos, honestly. I love that, and then if you're looking for a therapist understand that trauma therapists are specific therapists and so if you've got trauma it's pretty important to go to a specialist it's kind of like if you had a brain tumor you wouldn't necessarily go to your family doctor you go to a neurologist and then a neurosurgeon trauma is very similar you really do need to go to a specialist so um that's kind of my my things to recommend yeah Wow. Well, thank
0: you so much for being our guest. We'll have to have you back. I have like a million other questions now that have
3: I'd come love, up. I'd love to be back. That's awesome. And
0: and uh, Jenny was just telling me before the show, this is her very first time on the radio. So Never. It's such a privilege to have oh, you on our them. show.
3: Thank you, guys. It was awesome you have to be to here
0: yes absolutely so and thank you all for joining us for this week's episode of every woman tune in every saturday at three o'clock for another episode next week uh sheila johnson we have what's cooking with sheila coming up on every woman next week uh for us next is urban connections so stay tuned and have a fantastic weekend